Hey, Madeline. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So it's been a long time since we've taped our last Couch of Characters. Yes. What's yeah. what's new? Well, um, we're experiencing experiencing some very cold weather outside. I know. Um, trying to stay warm and getting ready for the holidays. And um, we had originally wanted to talk about our characters today and the Halloween, yes. era, you know, kind of season. But we're a little behind. But in so, in a real way, we're just on time mm-hmm. because part of the plot of one of the movies is a major snow blizzard. That's true. And we just experienced one. We did. So, so. thank you for reframing that, yeah. Madeline. So. The timing is perfect. It is. <laughs> So, welcome to Couch of Characters. This, again, is a podcast wherein two therapists analyze movie, television, and book characters. That would be Julia, who is a therapist-turned-producer, and myself, Madeline. Um, This is for entertainment purposes only. No advice, interventions, or information should be applied or attempted in your life. This is not meant to replace or supplement professional help. And information shared in this podcast could be harmful should you apply it to yourself, friends, family members, or people you interact with in your life. Please listen and enjoy. Welcome. Welcome to podcast number three. Um, we we had a hard time naming this. This is great. So we're going to call it The Shining Psycho. I love it. Episode number three. And we're going to focus on understanding psychopathy versus psychosis and respecting clients' experiences, beliefs, and realities through this work. This is great. Yeah. So should we just dive in? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, you go first. Okay, so just a little background if you haven't listened to the first two Good episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, Madeline, a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Madison area. I practice non-judgmental uh, individual couple and family therapy. And I'm here with Julia, who I had said is therapist turned producer. Yes, I uh, am a licensed marriage and family therapist. In the past year, I've been doing uh, work as a producer and still uh, very interested in all things therapy. So this is great that we get to meet and do this and today we're going to be comparing Norman Bates from Psycho and then Jack Torrance from The Shining from the film. I'm going to talk a little bit about the book but I think what's really interesting about both of these characters is their issues with psychosis. Yes. And so it's going to be really I think it's going to be a really interesting podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll start with listeners kind of be thinking about up an important theme today. Mm. It's the concept of perspective and multiple realities. So we'll explore a little bit of what to do when your reality maybe doesn't match your clients. Um, for sure, our characters today, their realities don't necessarily match those around them in the films. Um, and when they do, it doesn't work out so great. Nope. So it doesn't. So, um, and we'll also kind of talk about, um, and just in general, as a therapist, clients' truths and therapist beliefs don't always match, and there can be an interesting interplay between these two ideas. And of course, we're not going to be giving real therapy. Mm on this show, but we are going to talk sort of about um, our characters in that context. So 
right off the bat, um, and Julia, just just interrupt me if <laughs> if Go. something comes up. Okay, yep. so as a therapist, you're going to hear stories, especially as a new therapist, which is initially we kind of thought this podcast could be mm-hmm. for some therapists learning theories. Um, you're going to hear stories and experiences professionally all day long, and sometimes in a grueling rate, mm-hmm. sometimes eight or nine hours a day, and you're going to be faced with the challenge of marrying your reality to your clients in order to provide effective treatment. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that whether or not you're working with someone who's experiencing psychosis, um, you'll find that it doesn't help really to point out (laughs) if the realities don't match. And for Norman Bates especially, um, it doesn't really change his behavior, Mm -mm. the fact that other people aren't joining in his reality. Um, and, And sort of the media has a lot of different portrayals of what it's like to have a psych- psychotic mm-hmm. episode and um, they're not all super accurate. <laughs> no. no. But but it's still interesting to sort of play with this idea of realities. Um, so another idea to think about is, is truth constant or perspective to you? And this is what people who study psychosis um, and even in the end of Norman Bates' trial in Psycho, those people are sort of studying how did he get this way. So you may want to explore the idea of do we share reality or experience our own individual realities? Um, is the experience of psychosis really the experience of experience of someone who's connected with other worlds or someone experiencing a genetically and environmentally fueled brain crisis? And that's, I think, will tie in well when we talk about The Shining, too, because we have we talk about alternative realities and and do are there ghosts? Are there demonic possessions? Yeah. Or is that just a delusion Mm -hmm. that people are believing? Right. And I think we could end up later having a bigger discussion about cults, which maybe will be saved for another day, because I started thinking about shared psychotic disorder. But then what about a belief system that's much larger that many people believe? Mm-hmm. And what if that is centered around a delusion? Yeah. And then I feel like that turns into a cult. So anyway, I don't know if we'll get there. Yeah. It's like pretty heady stuff. But I think we can start um, start off with a little uh some psychotic theory, it looks yes. like. Yeah. Or no, psychotic theory. Psychoanalytic <laughs> theory. Well, no, you're right, though. It is your theories about psychosis. Oh, good. From a psychoanalytic perspective. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so first, we'll talk. So a lot of, if you sort of do some readings about uh, a kind of a shaman perspective, um, a lot of what you'll find with psychosis and people with schizophrenia is that that perspective is more a crisis of the spirit. So if you're sort of from a shaman perspective, you're thinking psychosis is a crisis of the spirit and interconnectedness with spirits beyond the world, beyond what most people can connect to, and you're sort of crossing those spirits over. And But if you're Freud, you believe it's a crisis of the mind. Mm-hmm. So it's very different paradigms. Um, some schools of thought about psychosis that we'll explore. So Anne Wright and Saidi um, is on the Brain Blogger. And she uses, as you said, psychoanalytic theory to look at psychosis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, so she thought that over, overall, um, this experience of psychosis is a free association of cognition or thoughts. So a psychotic individual experience, experiences such thoughts as owned in part by mm. the self and emanating in part from the other. So this is interesting to think about Norman Bates with Psycho. Um, he lives in a world where, though his mother is deceased, he, he acts out as though she's alive and he carries out what he feels she would want him to do as her. So he both interacts with her as the other and as his as himself um, in this delusion. 
and the psychotic individual can engage in the objectification of the mental realm, thus experiencing some part of his mind as his own and some part of his mind belongs predominantly to others. Mm. So that's exactly what happens when Norman becomes Norma, (laughs) his mother. So um, whatever these others are presumed to be by the psychotic individual is going to have an effect on how they interact. So one myth I'd like Mm. to dispel is that um, there's a lot there's a lot of talk about with psychosis about sort of murder and um, danger, and mm-hmm. that's not like that's not inherently part. It's of the only deal. what right, but it's only I think the only yeah. times we hear it in the news is when somebody has been having psychotic episodes and has harmed someone, and yes. so this is what we hear right in the yep. news, and so that's what we believe psychosis is, and it's not necessarily that there are very like nonviolent psychoses out there. And I actually later will have a story to tell about something like that. I guess no one died, but right there was some harm. Anyway, yeah, that's well, that's good. But yeah, good. and I think it's interesting because we don't hear necessarily about um, the overcoming. Yeah, that's on true. The news. We don't necessarily no. hear on TED talks. They have some really interesting um, discussions about this and you'll sort of hear if you go looking for positive stories of um, living with psychosis or psychotic episodes you'll find them Mm -hmm. but they're not broadcast Mm -mm. like when harm is done as Julia is saying yeah Um, so given that the psychotic individual experiences a significant amount of alienation it may be hypothesized that the alienation is both the precipitous is what she writes Mm -hmm. part or cause and the substantial effect of projection of this kind within one's mental realm so this is quite intense Yes. So the idea that one is experiencing fear through the psychotic episode leads to alienation. And then we sort of get the stories of danger. Right. And then alienation, because they're not in touch with people in their own world, allows the continued interaction of the others, which may or may not be real. Right. So it kind of is like what came first, the chicken or the egg Mm -hmm. in that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And because, and so Dr. Retien, I'm not sure if I'm mm-hmm. pronouncing it right, goes on to say, um, because the psychotic individual's encounter with hallucina- hallucinations relies on presentations of associative conversations with the other, as opposed to the comfort of intimate entities within the mind, the psychotic may also be said to experience a seriously unveiled intimacy with the projected other, an intimacy that is perceived as psychological nudity. So I'll give an example. I think of what she means. So Norman Bates, for example, he, from little on, struggles with separating his boundaries, even when his mother's alive, between himself and her. And and no boundaries are, are sort of displayed for him that are appropriate, safe, and nurturing. And the way the story goes is that he... He probably killed her, I think, and mm-hmm. then he keeps, or or maybe she died of natural causes, but if they allude to him killing her. Mm-hmm. He keeps her remains with him so that she's in sort of a shared reality as a skeleton. But then she lives in a space in his head that he can't control. Mm-hmm. So he isolates to keep her alive, but then because he's isolated and, alien- and alienated, his relationship with her in his head is also boundaryless. Yes. So she can come in and invade whenever she wants. Right. And there's no, he can't control her in his head. Yeah. So it's, it makes him dangerous. Mm-hmm. So. And oftentimes the psychotic processes are construed as punitive to the psychotic individual, this doctor writes. Um, the situation of projection onto the mental realm may be as a consequence confused as a punitive self-object relationship. So definitely 
<sighs> his hallucinations of his mother yelling at him are all very punitive. Like it's it's an invasion yeah. of his psyche, and she says terrible things to him, mm-hmm. and he acts out her saying them so that yeah. pe- other people can hear him. So. And I think for Jack Torrance, we'll talk a little bit later, is if he's having a delusion about what's happening at the Overlook, he has an interaction with Grady, the previous caretaker, and Grady is telling him that he needs to get his family in line and they need to follow suit because the son is acting out. And so he's basically asking in the delusion to kill his family. And Jack is struggling with that because in reality, he doesn't want to kill his family. Right. Got it. Yeah. That's exactly yes. So and and and, and Jack it is alienated. Yes. Yeah. So then what happens though is that because Jack is Jack is alienated from his family, he is then seeking out the, this person in the delusion which is helping alleviate some of that loneliness. Mhm. Yes. Cuz it's like lonely. I'm commiserating with you yes. about this horrible wife and child because that's what Grady does in the delusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's, Got yeah. it. And then we get into magical thinking. It's an affirmation of the assumed existence of the entity or entities within the mental realm that the psychotic individual judges to be dialogue with the self. So that happens for both Jack and mm-hmm. Norman. Yep. Um, so the more alone they become, the more isolated they become, the more they rely on these um, sort of hallucinate, hallucinated conversations. Yes. Um, the more magical, like the more detached from reality and more magical their thinking can be. Absolutely. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then she goes on to write, there's no reason to assume that a psychotic individual can be objective in the situation. She writes, he does not have an objective distance from the psychotic phenomena. So that's this question of boundaries, his internal mm-hmm. family system, as we talk about marriage and yeah. family therapy. Um, it's it's there's something going on with it that's mm-hmm. not allowing um, him to keep it keep keep control of his yes. internal family system, um, and there's arguments that this is not the internal family system. This is a hallucination outside of the self completely. Right. Um, and so, what she writes about is essentially because the experience does not exist to other people. It's going to be imperative to the psychotic individual to perceive mm-hmm. themselves as sane. So and and I'm we're not saying this is a politically correct discussion, right. but this is a very psychoanalytic kind of old school way yes. to look at a psychotic episode, yeah. um, which is interesting to think about for Jack and Norman. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so the question I had Oof. been journaling about is this idea of reality, um, because I tend to think we can't I'm kind of a social constructionist mm-hmm. in the way that I think we can't tell people what their reality is yeah um, I think we have to just, just accept um, the reality that's presented to us what if it's causing them harm so yeah so then I would say if it's causing them harm like if we look at Jack and Norman mm-hmm. that we are not going to power struggle our way out of harm yep so um it doesn't work for Norman's sort of the characters he murders or for Jack and his wife um, to be challenged in that Mm -hmm. way. So I don't know that they had any other choices but to challenge it because they have to survive. Survive, right. In sort of um, a residential place where you have a lot of options. Um, I, I would think the power struggle is not the recommended mode of sure. treatment is to argue with the person about right. whether they're reality. Oh yeah. 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 So no, it's like working within it and then trying to present subtle realities yeah. outside of the one they believe in. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or maybe 
challenging isn't the right word, but to be like, I wonder if this were true or since this is true, if this would happen. So you'd have to be really careful about the language you would use discussing so it doesn't become a power struggle. Yes. A lot of I'm curious, I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. presenting alternatives in a non-judgmental way. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, Julia. Yes. Um, then the other thing I had explored, so we, we talked about um, whether or not we're dealing with psychosis, just joining the reality mm-hmm. of the patient um, to a certain degree or of the client or um, whoever it is. Even even these film characters, we join their reality and we kind of go with them down the yeah. rabbit hole to see where we're going to go. Um if that's if there if we're really being led to sort of this world of hauntings and ghosts and other spirits, um, which is a possibility, mm-hmm. if that's true, then um, I wanted to find out: is there any physical evidence that there's damage being done? So, are we talking just emotional damage? Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact, there's a lot of physical evidence that there's damage to the frontal lobe of a brain when you have one of these experiences, and there's arguments about how that actually is part of of the psychosis but there's other arguments for if you are connected to the spirit world your brain would be a little damaged. different huh yeah. the chicken or the egg yes mm-hmm. so there's mm. limited frontal lobe activity in someone who experiences frequent psychosis um is the psychosis a cause or a consequence of the limited the limited frontal lobe activity is the question and somebody write and tell us. Um, no kidding. <laughs> and perhaps it's both both of these things. Um, so, and then this person writes the typical um, sort of psychotic individual, which I don't know if I like that language. No. But whatever no. it means. It's, we're just exploring this literature. May reason with himself. I hear voices in my head. This means that somebody or something is talking to me in my head. Although science has taught us not to judge mental and physical experiences in terms of the face validity exclusively, psychosis, including hallucinations and delusions, represents experience about which many psychotic individuals cannot reason adequately or, for that matter, understand rationally at all. So that's sort of the conclusion is that um, that's sort of what they have to say yep. to my posing that we can join a reality. Is, we I yeah. had the opportunity one time to work with someone who had schizophrenia, which was controlled by medication. However, um, he we had some really interesting discussions about like his reality was the birds are talking to me in the trees. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but, you know, OK, I can't hear them. Right. But then the big question is, is how they're there. I acknowledge that they're there. They're there for you. So then how do you continue to have a good day so that it's not just filled with bird chatter? The yeah. birds telling you to do something or not to do something, which was nonviolent, by the way. Yeah. You know, yeah. but to not also then to be having can you imagine what your life would be like if you have birds talking to you while you're trying to do other things. And so being able to have some coping skills to work in that, mm-hmm. like, what can you do? You know, well, winters are better than summers. Yikes. Right. You know. And that's a good point. Cause so in the summer, would you run the AC so you could hear them less? So like some really practical things, too, that could be done. Yeah. And that and that's a good thing you're bringing up is like scope of practice. Mm-hmm. So if you're a marriage and family therapist, that's an intervention Julia's talking about that is in your scope. Right. So long as you have the other services in place. Yes. And which that would, is going to work for that individual. Yeah. This individual had yeah. lots of services in place. I was what but one cog in a multifaceted yeah. wheel of treatment. Um which was the type of treatment this person needed to actually be living in the community. He was living in the community, not in an institution, and having a pretty good right. life. So Yeah. 
And that's and our next thing is the most reliable treatment of psychosis remains the psychopharmacological treatment, given the, that mm-hmm. the effectiveness of this treatment must be understood and rely upon the orchestra- orchestration of experimental ingenuity in finding yes. the right medication. So, so as a therapist, when those things are in place, you can sort of join the world the way Julie is talking about and think about it practically while being sort of mm-hmm. grounded and present with the, with the patient or yep. client. Um, and you're right. Telling him, yeah. if I had told him the birds don't exist, it would have ruined our therapeutic right. relationship. Yeah. So like very practically, you joined that's in reality I joined in his reality very practically or I wouldn't have, I would have been fired. So yeah. 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 So that's a good example. Cool. Yeah. And then Freud had a different take on it. Um, he always does. <laughs> so our present ego feeling is only a shrunken residue of a much more inclusive, indeed all-embracing feeling, which corresponded to a more intimate bond between the ego and the world around it. In terms of the therapeutic qualities of faith as experienced through a relationship with a God, religion represents a connection with a God that may represent a reenactment of a state so primitive that it replicates a symbiotic connection that, in a sense, precedes the connection with a mother object. So very interesting, Freud. Yes. Say what you want about him. He was brilliant. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's brilliant and confusing. Yes. (laughs) No. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think... (laughs) I think you can digest that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Julia, what do you think about it? <laughs> well, I yes. think what he's trying to say is... Let me see there. So interesting. It's sort of, I think, taking it from like that original relationship is what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With a well, I could say object. a couple of things, but I don't know that I will. Like, okay. one would be, well, this is the idea, too, of like, who's reality? So if you strongly believe in a religion and you pray to somebody and let's say you were an alien, like you were suddenly picked up by aliens, human being is picked up by an alien. And they're like, what are you doing? You're praying to see you don't see it. We don't see God is not here. Mm -hmm. There's all these stories about him. But in this society, that is not a delusion. Right. But maybe in an alien planet, that would be a complete delusion. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of I wonder a little bit of what he means. That's what I think of when I see this is like religion represents a connection with a God that may represent a reenactment of a state so primitive. It replicates a symbiotic connection that in a sense precedes the connection. So is he saying we create religion to help recreate something that's. That that's, was been per- lost. that's been lost. Yeah, I don't know. There's With a lot. My gosh, connection. Yeah, we could talk about this for like an for an hour. But I think right. that maybe it goes more towards what is our reality, and then we say we have faith. Yeah, in something that doesn't ex- like doesn't have isn't in front of us. Right, it's not tangible. It's but no one is saying Julia, you have a share because you believe in God. Right. You know. No no one's I, do I have a delusion? And then right. actually it's a shared psychotic disorder because anybody else I'm with would, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's just interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's in some ways he's kind of is he being compassionate? I don't know. <gasps> I don't know. Is Freud ever compassionate? I don't know. Is that what he's doing? I don't know. Is that what he's saying? Or is he sort of explaining He says, yeah, he says yet a connection of one's therapist in adult life is not such a real 
reenactment of a connection with God or mother object or primary, you get to explain this, or any other primary symbolic figure constructed in the infant and standing like an obelisk in the conscious or unconscious mind. The adult is not primitive in spite of the lurking id. The adult possesses an ego and a conscience construed as reason and sense of moral obligation. For these reasons, the relationship between the client and his therapist does not require religious or maternal joining, symbiosis or extreme intimacy, or an all-encompassing feeling of acceptance in order to be effective. Indeed, this would be dysfunctional anti-therapeutic. All right, Madeline. Interesting. So now what is he saying? So I think, at first I think he's being compassionate about number of realities. But the second part, I'm wondering if he's saying, Miss Madeline, you don't have to join. That's what I think he's saying. You don't have to join the reality of your client. No. Because you don't have to replace for them any sort of attachment figure in order for them to get better. um, Because you are simply sitting and being present with what exists in their head. And I would, I'd say, Freud, I want to watch you do that. (laughs) Exactly. But I think that's, I agree with you. I think that's spot on. So interesting. Yeah. Oh, and and as stuff. a marriage and family therapist, you're going to work with a lot of different people and figure mm-hmm. out what, what works for you. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you'll be Freud. I maybe. maybe. Yes. Yeah. And then we have some statistics. And the point of this first part isn't really to, to preach about sort of psychosis, but really just to sort of rev us up for our conversation about um, our fun movies. But... If we look at the characters, uh, if we look at like Norman Bates, for example, and we talk about um, the chances of people developing psychosis is another thing a lot of people mm. ask about. Um, so it it is common. Schizophrenia affects 1% of the general population. Mm-hmm. Bipolar disorder ex- affects 1% to 2% of the general population. And major depression or depressive disorder affects about 5 to 10% of the general population. So it says, however, studies show that the chances, and this is from earlypsychosis.ca for California, mm-hmm. early, um, studies show that the chances for developing many types of psychosis are higher for family members of people with a psychosis. So... Mm. Um, it's interesting to look at Norman Bates from the Alfred Hitchcock psycho movie mm-hmm. and think about other um, mental sort of ailments that existed in his family. Yeah. And in Julia's case with Jack, like sharing psychosis in yes. the family is interesting. So um, they talk about major depression. The chances to develop psychosis is 15 to 30 percent. Um, and the chances to not develop it are 70 mm. to 85. And I think Norman Bates is interesting because I sort of read him as an antisocial character. And I agree with that. I thought it had nothing, like, I mean, it connected with his psychotic mm-hmm. break, but I don't think what made him, I don't think his psychosis was part of that antisocial personality disorder. I think he had a psychotic break where he began to hallucinate, yep. but he is very adept at tricking people and grooming people, mm-hmm. murdering them and covering up murder. Yeah. Um, it which, seems like long before his hallucination starts. Right, which is so interesting because he's has a, del- a like a delusion, an active delusion, and yet has enough reason to yeah. know to cover it up, which is why he is yes antisocial. Yes, exactly. And I think it shows practice. It yes. shows that the neural pathways in his brain were well practiced at those activities before the delusion. He his dead mother was not. Dead. Yes. So, <laughs> so that's yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's also like a theory of family therapy. So this is really Norman Batesy, um, the family therapy theory of the double bind. Oh, I love double binds. It's in- it's interesting. So that is when. Of usually a caregiver or primary caregiver, some important relationship um, 
has it needs to be an important relationship to have to make the double bind so effective so the relationship is important and then the message does not match sort of the meta message yes. so an example we give is if i were to reach out my arms for julia to come hug me and then she hugged me and when she hugged me i sort of recoiled into myself yes. but i didn't say oh i changed my mind i don't want to hug right i let her sit and, and think and wonder yeah. about why i wanted this hug that i rejected so that's like a tiny act of double bind and there's arguments in marriage and family therapy theories about um, a series of cons- like constant double binds in parental child relationships creates um, sort of a sensation of one having lost their mind, for yes. lack of a better word, yep. or or being or being disconnected from reality, or not being able to figure out reality, um, and sort of this notion that sometimes the only response to madness is madness. So, um, and that's kind of a dramatic take on. But they are double binds are really can really mess a person up. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. In those re- in those love relationships, any type of attachment or anything like that, right? And that's and exploring Norman Bates. I there. I really wanted to know if. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were obviously double binds in his hallucination, um, with a mother sort of wanting him to be with her, but then insulting him yes. the entire time they're together. Right. But then when I looked, sort of, I looked back at the Netflix has the Bates Motel, the mm-hmm. history of Norman Bates in the TV show, and the very first. Um, the sort of the first awkward double bind for me was in the first season when he I think he gets on the track team or he has some school success and um, his mother's made him dinner Norma made Norman dinner and he comes home to eat the dinner and tells her about his school success and she's immediately disinterested in this warm meal she was about to make for him so it's like she's showing him this affection I want to be with you I made you this dinner I'm so glad you got through your first day oh you were successful oh that's threatening Mm -hmm. to me and so I'm not happy anymore and so it was very double bindy and icky and after watching like multiple episodes in the show, I thought, okay, I'm buying it. They did a good job. Yeah. This will create, this could create the psycho. Yes. Like this, like he's so double-binded and even his name is a derivation of his mother's. mother's. Oh, he's not so allowed creepy. To be a separate entity. No. When it goes to her not wanting him to really launch. Right. Like there's a lot of jealousy. I've seen a couple episodes of jealousy of like him meeting other girls and her being like, she's so nice. But it's like, you can feel, that you can feel she doesn't, she's saying the right thing, but it doesn't sound right at all. Right. Right. And it's an, inter- yeah. an interesting choice that the girl he, that she does allow in the house um, is someone who's on an oxygen tank. And she sort of like has perceived every other female character with such threat. But this she, is a vulnerable person. Yeah, she sees her as vulnerable. I think she's threatened still. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some bit of vulnerability that she somehow, okay, you can come in my house. Yeah. <laughs> but oh it's gosh. just very creepy. So yes. please watch it if you haven't, if you like creepy things. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the uh, mm-hmm. if you're interested in looking up this more, so Sonia Lavender and Andre Werbert. Um, they have talked a lot about psychosis and alien invasion or haunting and it not being a brain mm-hmm. experience. Um, and well, what they talked about is if somebody can see, um, as someone who's experienced a psychotic episode, they, they talked about if you can see it as a brain experience, um, then you're going to have an easier time recovering from it. Mm. So I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. because these stories about alien invasion or haunting take longer to get over because there's too many unpredictable variables that you can't control for. So they write about how you can recover more quickly if you think of it as this is a thing that happened to me, a part of my life, and my brain did wow. this thing. Wow. So, yes, so that makes sense. 
But then do you get really, de- like, depressed because you went through this? Right. <laughs> in some ways, is it better to say the story is the right. I was invaded by aliens, and alien abduction, and yeah. now they're gone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then um, one more thing. Mm-hmm. So then... I just Jason Gaddis, G-A-D-D-I-S dot com, um, talking about how a shaman would view view a mental hospital is really interesting for us to think about. So a shamanic um, view of a mental hospital, mental illness signals the birth of a healer. So um, Melodoma Patrice Somme is is a shaman who explained this. And mental disorders are spiritual emergencies, spiritual crises, and a need to be regarded as such to aid the healer in being born of the spiritual crisis. Um, crisis. But what those in the West view as mental illness, the Dagara people regard as good news for the other world. The person going through the crisis has been chosen as a medium for a message to the community that needs to be communicated from the spirit realm. So that, I thought that was just, and maybe it's because I'm a, a sappy mm-hmm. marriage and family therapist, right. but I just thought that was beautiful. It's beautiful. Compared to, right. <laughs> compared to the other things. Um, mental disorder, behavioral disorder of all kinds signal the fact that two um, obviously incompatible energies have emerged into the same field, says Dr. Somay. These disturbances result when the person does not get assistance in dealing with the presence of the energy from the spirit realm. So that's, you know, that's like a completely different way of thinking about mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's more, I feel like it's more emotionally focused. Mm -hmm. May I say that? Yes, you may. It's more emotionally focused than, um, than it is sort of objects, object relations Mm -hmm. focused, which is a very, two very different theories of managing something painful. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, should we get into the movies? Let's get in the movies. Get into the movies. Okay. <laughs> Julia, do you want to go first? It doesn't right? matter. I can go first, or you can go. Okay, well, I feel it. So Julia has kind of like a really crazy, amazing punchline <laughs> to, to our discussion. So like, I think we should save it. Okay. I don't know if there's any podcasts that are going to talk about it. No, there's not going to be any. This is... No one's going to listen after this is the most interesting one. I'm just kidding. This is always interesting. Yeah. You go first, and okay. then I'll add the twist. Let me drink my water quick. Okay. All right. Get going. Hold on. All right. Now we're recording okay. again. All right. All right. Good. A little technical issue. We're back. We're back. Um. So the sort of the IMDb history... Um, explanation of the psycho movie um so uh, alfred hitchcock this is his baby um the very brief plot is that a phoenix secretary steals forty thousand dollars from her employer's client she goes on the run and checks into a remote motel run by a young man under the uh, domination of his mother so that's her perspective of it she doesn't know the mother's not alive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the screenplay was written by Joseph Stefano and the novel by Robert Block. Um, this main character is Marion Crane. Um, fun facts. So she's Janet Lee, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. And um, I think it's interesting to think about how when you start, Alfred Hitchcock is one of my all-time, Julia, so I just have to share really quick. <laughs> sure. When I first saw a Hitchcock film, it was Vertigo, and I was 10, and I think I've never been the same. So I, I watched religiously like all the TV episodes uh, for the Alfred Hitchcock show, and then um, I had like a little picture book, I think in like, it had to have been grade school, of like Hitchcock 
like pictures that my grandmother got me, which is funny because like what grade schooler right. Alfred Hitchcock's that great? Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, I'm, I wasn't born in the thirties, so it didn't make a lot of sense, but that was, that was definitely an obsession of mine. It's a so, good obsession to have. He's one of the best filmmakers of all time. So, so yeah, he is. It's, yeah. It's a healthy well obsession. done. Yes. So we have Norman Bates, um, who is played by Anthony Perkins, who's just fabulous. Um, and I had seen the the new Psycho and not the old one. Oh. Um, after, I think I saw it like the new one way after I'd seen the original, but it was a year's gap. And then years later, I'm studying this for our podcast. And did you know that Vince Vaughn played Norman Bates? No. <laughs> Like, and, and you and Hesh played the lead. Yeah, because it was on one day around Halloween, probably. Right. Vince Vaughn. Yeah, and he did like fabulous because I don't remember like thinking, oh, this is. It was before I think he was super famous. Sure. But it's funny to imagine, you know, that's such a right. hard character to play. Right. But, and so, kind of out of his normal shtick. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But he, I mean, he did great. Wow. So, yeah. I'll have so, to check that out. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. So okay. So Marion Crane. So this is our our secretary who steals forty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. She's about, she steals it to go meet up with her boyfriend who's a divorced man and a lot of debt. Um, the initial scene is, is they are scantily clad in their, in their undergarments. And um, they are sort of talking about how they can't get married until he's debt free. Um, there's some sort of thought about what if we just married anyway? And then she steals some money. So she, so she's driving through. Julia's laughing at me. So she's driving through um, town, and she begins to imagine her boyfriend's voice and reaction—a conversation they will never have. Dun dun dun. That she begins to imagine, and she then sees her boss on the crosswalk walking, who she just stole this money from, and told him she was going to go home sick. So now she's running away with this money, and she sees him on the crosswalk. And Hitchcock starts to play with our sense of reality, speaking of psychosis Mm. here, right away by putting these voices or these auditorily projected thoughts on the soundtrack while showing a straightforward camera angle of her face and her dodging eyes while she thinks about the conversation we know, but she doesn't. She won't be having with her stolen money with her uh, boyfriend (sighs) and about her boss discovering the the money being Mm -hmm. stolen. So already we're like, what's real, Hitchcock? What's happening? (sighs) So we get the sense her mind is unstable and feverishly busy, folks. So we, we're not sure what's happening, but we think she's our main character, and she's not. <laughs> so you start to feel paranoid with her before she's brutally stabbed during a bloody shower incident. And I think, like, you have to be Alfred Hitchcock to get away with killing what we think is the main character 45 minutes into the movie. That was probably what was most shocking to me. It's like she's dead, like, in the first hour, and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. And I continue to imagine, well, this is this is a hallucination. Yes. And she's going to show up. Right. With, with her pointy brassiere yes. and her luggage. And she's going to go back and find with her With the boyfriend. money. And yeah. Yes. Kind of what I just kept mm-hmm. thinking. Um, so, so he kills her off within 45, about 45 minutes. And then we learn that the movie is really about Norman. <laughs> and Norman Bates. You know, I think Hitchcock is smart because if we start off with this creepy hotel owner who's mm-hmm. obsessed with with like taxidermy in the middle of nowhere we kind of don't want, you know who's gonna i mean nowadays yeah we'd probably watch it but like i don't know if his audience would have been like yes let's buy into well Norman and it's Bates. it's also the idea of hitchcock revealing like 
her being killed in the shower is going to have a lot more power when the story is about her and Norman seems like this harmless guy. Yeah. It's like in terms of incredible filmmaking nowadays, it's like the filmmakers think we're stupid and so they have to spoon feed us all this information and then it's the payoff isn't as big so that's That's what makes Hitchcock brilliant yeah no spoon feeding you figure it out figure it out figure it out yes anyway really a good observation Mm -hmm. yeah so the fame of the shower scene stays with you forever um and what's funny is that Norman Bates is our main character. And I just thought it was interesting that the f- most famous scene in the entire movie is someone who's not Norman and Norman pretending to be his mother. So he's not even in the famous yes. shot and the whole movie's about him. I mean, he's there, but he yeah. doesn't know he's there. No. So, <laughs> so then she dies and then the intensity of Norman's mental illness is so well crafted, basically, that we don't need this most famous scene to be about him. You feel sort of his sickness throughout the film and film and the nervousness of all the characters. So that's yes. OK, so what does Norman have? Like, I know. Do we care? Well, kind of. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, so he's not necessarily um, I think like people sort of think of him as having schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's... I don't know how I feel about that. So... He, I'd go back to that, like... Yeah. He, he can make good decisions. He's antisocial yep. personality disorder, which is a totally different thing. Yep. And being schizophrenic, having schizophrenia in itself does not produce dangerous behavior. No. I think his either psych, think, psych, mm-hmm. psychopathy or antisocial behavior, he had a break, and now we see some... Yeah. And I think the media often portrays schizophrenics as being violent because right. that's the ones we hear about. Right. But that's not, I mean, no. that's not part of, doesn't, it's not part of it, people. No. So, no. Um, so this common myth that psychosis leads to homicidal ideation, but it doesn't necessarily. Um, I've, in my life, met a lot of people and worked with a lot of people experiencing this, mm-hmm. and they were not dangerous people. So mm-hmm. I know that's not everybody's story, but I right. just need to share that. And then... Um, I actually think so. Norman is a sociopath before his delusions begin, and when they do, he's having the psychotic break. I think he was violent before. Um, I wouldn't rely on him to tell me that he wasn't. Um, I don't think he knows. Um, there's definitely an interest in harming animals, which is sort of one of the things. One of the markers. Know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's keeping the dead body of his mother for quite some time. It doesn't bother him at all that she smells bad. No. Nope. I mean, no, and she's dressed nicely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I, I don't think, I think we're dealing with, with a psychotic break mm-hmm. and rather than, like, schizophrenia. Um, yeah, and then I want to kind of bring up some of the things he says. So if you ever meet Norman, <laughs> you kind of know what to look for. So whether or not um, he believes his mother is real isn't the big thing. I think his he does this awkward grooming of Marion, which we see in a lot of sociopathic behavior when she arrives at the hotel. He has a smooth use of lies. He has narratives about his mother and an appearance that he's harmless. So whether or not he really believes his mother is real, he behaves like a sociopath even after the break. Um, so he sinks Marion's car and her body after killing her as his mother into the swamp, and he has a big smirk on his face. So mm-hmm. he's Norman Bates. He's not hallucinating. He's sinking... A body. Yes. In a swamp. He knows what he's doing. He's smirking. Yeah. I don't know if he knew. Like, I think he might really think my mom killed this Oh, woman. totally. He's he, liking it. Yeah. So, so um, then he also talks about um, 
he implies that him and his mother have this conflicted relationship. Mm-hmm. So he says to Marion, I wish you could apologize for other people. Yeah. So he has this sort of, he kind of knows his mom's off her rocker, whether or not he believes she's real. Um, he knows that she's rude and inappropriate and possibly dangerous because he works to keep them apart. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, and like, maybe you could say, well, he's keeping his delusion intact. But I don't know. Mm. He then cover covers up Marion's murder or his mother's murder. Mm-hmm. If, she, if she thinks. If well, he, to be the good son, he's mm-hmm. going to cover up that murder. Right. But not every good son covers no. up murders. So, yeah. And not and there's nothing about like his hallucination doesn't require that he covers up the murder, no. I don't think. But I'd love someone to write and argue mm-hmm. with this. So that'd be so great. Um, so he then murders Detective Arbogast, which is the best name ever. Mm-hmm. And um, as his mother again. But before he becomes her again, this is a detective looking for Marion. He lies with great skill to this detective and appears to only feel nervous about being caught, but not oh, remorseful for the murder. Thanks, Madeline. Yep. So 10-year-old Madeline kept waiting for sweet Norman Bates to try and, like, save Marion from his imaginary mother. He didn't. He kind of digs it. How's 10-year-old Madeline doing with that? Well, she she's okay. Oh, good. I mean, I think, like, I liked that the sister shows up. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, so there's, there's going to be, like, another character that I can reattach to. Yes. You know, as a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. like, I needed, I needed to have, you know, the other lady with the puffy hair and the nice coat show up and, and take Everything's going to be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at this trauma perspective of Mm -hmm. psychotic breaks, Norman can't apologize for or control his mother. So in some ways, becoming her is a way of really controlling her. um, And she is a murderer in his version of her, which is interesting. So so did she kill his soul, Julian? Or did she actually, like in the Bates Motel, she killed people. We don't know in this uh, psycho movie if, if... the original Robert Blotch of the novel intended for for her to have been a murderer or just in his version of her, I don't think. So, oh. yeah. Okay, and so then he also, from a trauma perspective of this psychotic break, he indicates that the boundaries are never clear between he and his mother. So he runs her hotel as both her son and her employee. He has two. He has creepy tax a taxidermy hobby, but it's an obsession, not just a hobby. A hobby, and perhaps an indication of his want to control things that are deceased, as he does his mother's corpse. So this is this is my therapy brain with Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. It was a fun weekend. Yes. <laughs> so then those are two points. Just I want listeners to think about. And then three. He's isolated. He has no friends, and has been given the message that his um, gut. He's gutless mm-hmm. and unworthy of relationships. So double bind. There it is. Take care of my hotel. Be my only employee, but you suck. Yeah. Like, right. What does that mean, Norma? So then he says, people never really run away from anything to Marion. We're all in our private traps. I was born in mine and I don't really mind it anymore. So is that when he has his break? Right. He can't get out of his taxidermy mother trap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the same conversation, though, because he's not all with mm-hmm. it, he says, a boy's best friend is his mother. I'd love to know when, like you said, when did the psychotic break first occur? Was it upon her death? Was it some terrible thing she did to him beforehand? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And in Psycho alone, you can't determine that. No. If you watch Bates Motel, she's nuts. So, so so it's like you had said before, she's nuts and develops. He becomes antisocial because of her treatment of him. Mm-hmm. And the double binds. And the double binds, the constant double binds. And then we don't know genetically, like because we don't know who dad is, if he was predisposed to psychotic breaks. Yeah. Is it when mom dies, does he kill his mother in a fit of rage? Then afterwards cause the psychotic break and I think the TV show and I haven't watched the whole thing Mm -hmm. because my focus was psycho but I think the TV show goes and explains all those things but we do know that his early life is riddled there's murder in it yes like she kills off some some attackers in front of him that's right I did see that Yeah. yeah and she I mean the way his father dies is really bizarre okay or his stepdad so mm-hmm. it's confusing but i think like hitchcock wants us to wonder these things sure he wants us that's to think and use our brains mm-hmm. so that's what's interesting so i love yeah. base motel but we can also have like psycho stand on its own yeah i think yes um, so as a marriage and family therapist you might be exploring these boundaries you mm-hmm. might be exploring like what julia alluded to like intergenerational patterns yeah of sort of, of violence mm-hmm. and power and control and lack of boundaries. And so basically overall, Norman lives with these conflicting messages about his self-worth um, from his mother, and he both can't gain control of her or meet her needs when he relinquishes his power. So he can't control her as a man because she tell, tells him he's gutless. He can't control her. Mm-hmm. Um and then when he gives up his power, she then becomes a hallucination. So he's double-binded by a primary caregiver and can't exist separately from her. So even when she's dead, his mind demands that she still live. So it's... Poor Norman. Yeah, poor guy. And the last the last scene, the evaluating psychiatrist in court says he only half existed to begin with. <laughs> and of course, they reveal that Norm, Norm, Norman was slowly becoming his mother fully throughout the film until yeah. in the end when he is only her. Um, so she didn't allow him to have his own person and double-binded him into his psychosis is what we're led to believe. The Shining is way different. The Shining is so different. Um, and I remember seeing the end of the of Psycho where he's basically now like fully in the delusion and become his mother. And I'd be curious, now he's out of the motel, he's in jail or prison or ends up at a, hopefully a mental institution because that's where he would belong over a prison probably, would be... Does he stay fully in that delusion or does he get pulled out of it? Yeah. And does he become, and this is why, I mean, Hitchcock leaves it open-ended. Yeah, we need it. We need it. What would sequel, be the resolution? But the sequel will be inevitably horrible. Yes. Right? No Hitchcock sequel not made by him would no. work out for us. All right, so yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk okay. I'm going to talk about the shining first and I'm going to talk about the what I call a shared psychotic disorder. So, I think it's helpful in this context to go first with the Shining. So The Shining is a book written by Stephen King. I highly recommend reading the book. It's a fantastic novel. Um, and then it was a movie created um, by Stanley Kubrick, who also I adore, like you adore Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah. I think it's exciting to actually talk about these two incredible filmmakers mm-hmm. in these films. So um, he, Stanley Kubrick, made The Shining. Now, there's a couple of things that I wish he had embraced more from the book that he didn't. Although as a standalone film, The Shining is outstanding. So I highly recommend also seeing the film. Um, The part about the movie that I wish um, more of the, sorry, more of the book that had been incorporated into the film because it would have made Jack Torrance more sympathetic was that in the book, Jack Torrance 
feels is kind of a loser. So he really loves his son and he's very connected to his son and he doesn't really like what's happening to him, but forces beyond his control are taking over. And so there are these moments where he is in the book, seems lucid and is trying to stop what's happening. And then there's times that he's not. And Kubrick doesn't really go into that into the film. He kind of makes, you know, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance as just kind of this bad guy. So I wish there'd been more of that okay. in the um, in the movie. So the premise of The Shining is that there's three people. There's Jack Torrance, his wife Shelley, and his son Danny. And now Danny Torrance is basically has what we what Stephen King calls The Shining. And so it's this telepathic um, telepathic uh, ability. So he can communicate with other people who have The Shining without speaking. And then he can also communicate with dead people or so in the movie, there's his friend Tony and they call him an imaginary friend Tony. And Danny's approximately five or six years old. So he's still in that age where it would be very normal to have an imaginary friend. And so that's generally how Jack and Shelley treat him as like... Or Wendy, I'm calling her Shelly. I'm calling her Shelly because it's Shelly Duvall. Yes, Wendy, yeah. Wendy. Either way. Either way, Wendy and Jack basically are like, this is your imaginary friend. So anyway. And, um, and a shaman would love that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And because I feel like I'm going to morph the book in the film, um, I'll say one more thing about the book. Tony in the book is very much in some ways someone who um, shows Dan um, premonitions of things that are happening. The problem in the book is that 50% of those things aren't real. So sometimes the premonitions are true and sometimes they're not. And Danny is able to kind of knows that to be the case. Very interesting. So in the movie... Jack is interviewing at the Overlook, which is this beautiful Colorado resort up in the mountains, and they need a caretaker over the winter. So it's shutting down for the summer, and him and his family are going to live there and um, take care of the place over the winter. And they are cautioned at the beginning that the year before, um, the family, a caretaker, Grady and his family, um, uh, ended up dying there. Grady went crazy, murdered his wife and children, and these two girls, twins that were there. Jack is assured that that isn't going to happen. He's a writer. He is going to uh, write his novel, and everything is going to be fine. So uh, one of the other things that's important to know about Jack is that he's a recovering alcoholic. And the reason he is a recovering alcoholic is that when he was drinking, he broke Danny's arm or injured his shoulder when Danny got into his papers. So let's add, we've got a recovering alcoholic who I actually believe is a dry drunk. So he just stopped drinking, but did not get any actual treatment for it. Two, there is some fear that is existing in this family, this triad, because he had been violent before. And three, they're going to go live up in the mountain by themselves, right, in this overlook. So what happens in the movie is that uh, the place is haunted. Now, they say it was built on Indian burial grounds. And um, Danny's having premonitions. The first day Danny's there, he sees blood coming through the elevator down the hall, which is a really magnificent scene done in slow motion. Um, he sees the twin girls. And then the whole family is told not to go into room 237. So now there's this curiosity to go into room 237. Because what do children do? They do things they're told they're not supposed to do. <laughs> um, so Jack 
is exceedingly becoming more paranoid and distrustful of Wendy and Danny. Um, he is starting to communicate with dead people in the hotel. Um, Danny goes into the room he's not supposed to, comes out with choke marks on his neck. During that time, Jack is missing. So Wendy thinks Jack strangled him. Um, then, which st- obviously causes uh, some marital strife between Wendy and Jack. Um, and then how it ends is Jack is told, well, I should take a step back. There's this amazing scene. So Jack wants to start drinking again. There's no alcohol in the hotel, but where he ends up in the ballroom with everybody dancing, goes up to the bar and starts drinking. Yeah, gets so you handed, don't know if it's real. Don't know if it's yeah. real or not. And so all of the behaviors that Wendy was seeing when he was drinking are coming back into this. Anyway, he runs into Grady, who tells him he needs to... In the bat, the red bathroom. The red bathroom. So beautiful. He basically runs into Grady, and Grady says, you need to control your family. You need to control your family. You need to deal with them. They need a strong hand. So that's when Wendy has locked him out of the apartment, I believe, as well. I'm going to get these details mixed up. But essentially... Jack attacks them. She knocks him out with a baseball bat on the stairs, drags his body, puts it in the freezer. Then she locks herself in the apartment with Danny, who is still catatonic from being choked. So at this point, he's catatonic and not speaking because the woman choked him. Also, Jack had gone into the room 237, kisses a beautiful naked woman who then turns into the dead woman who's all grossed and decomposing, but then does not admit to Wendy that he saw anything. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. And romantic. Oh, (laughs) yes. So funny. So then, anyway, gets locked in there and then somebody lets him out of the freezer. Right. So Grady lets him out of the freezer. Right. Then he gets the axe, goes, tries to kill Wendy. Meanwhile, I didn't say this before. Halloran, the chef who also has the shining, gets called by Danny to save them. So he ends up at the overlook to save them. (laughs) And Jack hears him show up in the snowmobile, basically leaves from killing his family, kills Halloran, which allows Wendy to get away. And then... Jack sees Danny. He runs out and he leads him into the maze, the big maze outside of the overlook. And then he eventually freezes to death. And then at the end of the film, it shows a picture of Jack with everybody. A photograph of like all the employees from the 1920s. And it oh, shows yeah, Jack yeah. there at the end. I forgot about that yes. ending. So that's, that was an amazing plot summary. So it is. <laughs> so it the Again. I won't give the book is different. So the okay. book ends differently, but I won't give it away in case you want to read the book. I won't ruin it for you. So other than to say that Jack is a much more sympathetic character in The Shining. Okay. All right. So here's what I think. Yeah. This is so there's a couple of holes in this story, but it's still, I think, really accurate. So there's a very unusual type of psychotic disorder called a shared psychotic disorder or what they like to call a folie a deux. Now, in this case, we could call it a folie a trois Mm -hmm. or a folie a deux, depending on how we want to portray whether Danny believes this delusion. So what I'm going to talk a little bit now is it's a madness shared by two. And if you want to see an excellent film 
about a folie adieu, go out and get the movie Bug, which stars Michael Shannon and Ashley Judd. And it is about a man who believes the military has implanted bugs into his body to um, to monitor him. And it's their relationship and how she comes to believe this is happening and starts doing it. It's kind of gross. So just be warned. You've been warned. But it's a perfect example of a folie adieu. Yeah. Okay. So... Basically, it's a uh, madness shared by two or shared psychosis where uh, symptoms of a delusional belief and hallucinations are transmitted from one individual to another. The same syndrome shared by more than two people may be called a folie à trois, folie à quatre, quarter, four. Yeah. So you can up to four people. And a folie en familiaire. <gasps> so a shared psychotic disorder of a family. Ooh, um, those are or more the, common than I think we really know. I yes. know, right? Or plusieurs, madness of many. Recent psych- psychiatric classifications refer to the symptom syndrome as shared psychotic disorder or an induced delusional disorder. All right. So it's diagnosed when two or more individuals concerned live in proximity and may be socially or physically isolated yep. and have little interaction with other people. So the, the boxes t- are ticked. Right. Yeah. So we're ticking off boxes here. Yeah. as we think about the Torrance family all alone up at the Overlook. Um, various subclassifications of a folia do have been proposed to describe how the delusional belief comes to be held more than by one person. So the foli impose is where a dominant person, known as the primary inducer or principal, initially forms a delusional belief during psychotic episode and imposes it upon another person or persons. Those are known as secondary acceptor or associates wow. with the assumption that the secondary person might not have become deluded if left to his or her own devices. So it's the uh, yes. If the parties are admitted to the hospital separately, then the delusions in the person with induced beliefs usually resolve without need of medications. So in this case, if you had rescued this poor family before Jack died and you put them in a mental institution or hospitalized them, pardon me, Wendy and Danny would give up the delusion. Okay. But Jack would not. Jack would need medication. Okay. Because and then he's brought them into his delusion. Right. Okay. If we believe, and at this point I'm saying that it's a belief, Jack is having the delusions. That's In some nice. ways, Danny believes, actually, I'm going to step back for a second. Danny believes the delusion. It's not until almost the end of the film where we see Wendy having the delusion. Right. Oh, my goodness. Or the hallucination. She yeah. sees the hallucination because she sees um, some of the dead people. So really, Danny sees it first, then Jack, then Wendy. Wow. Yeah. This is, And that's so interesting because <laughs> to have a theory like that, it takes something as intense as psychosis. But right. family systems looks a lot like that. It does so look a lot it's like just that. not with psychosis. It's no. just like different identified patients and, sh- and shared sort of functioning that isn't yes. working or maladaptive right. behavior patterns in families. Exactly. So, so interesting. Yeah. So then a Foley, um, let's see, sim- it's basically a simultaneous Foley I do. So a simultaneous shared psychotic disorder describes either the situation where two people considered uh, to suffer independently from psychosis hmm, influence the content of each other's delusions so they may become identical or strikingly similar, or one in which two people morbidly predisposed to delusional psychosis mutually trigger symptoms in each other. Um, When I was doing a little bit of research, um, I saw an ad for um, or a picture of uh, natural born killers. And so Mm -hmm. I'd have to go back and look at those two. But I wonder if it would be that, like, two people believe the same thing, kind of come together. Yeah, that's interesting. And, well, there's different dyads 
that we see all over of people that come together for, and it's not necessarily mm-hmm. like a shared psychosis, no. but it's like a, a shared sort of like they can be dangerous. Yes. Like when you have a sociopath pair with a psychopath, right? Antisocial personality pair with borderline, mm-hmm. or if we have yeah two people experiencing the same psych- psychotic. Do you delusion. know who else? Oh, we don't have enough time today to discuss this, but I was just thinking when we're thinking about a delusion. Do you know who else has a big psychotic break? Is um, Ed Norton's character in the Fight Club. Oh, yes. <gasps> we could do Fight Club. Let's do Fight Club. Yeah, let's, let's do, do Fight Club next time. time. Yeah, <gasps> let's do Fight Club next Okay. Anyway, yes. more psychosis for everyone. Yeah. So anyway, we'll go into here. It's that it's a very... So first of all, this is considered very much a psychiatric curiosity. You're not going to come... It, into these very often a folia do. So the current DSM uh, states that the DSM-5, well, it's probably four. Oh, that's you. Um, states a person cannot be diagnosed as, as being delusional if the belief in question is one ordinarily accepted by other members of the person's culture or subculture, which we've talked about, yes. right? So... Um, When a large number of people may come to believe obviously false and potentially distressing things based purely on hearsay, these beliefs are not considered to be clinical delusions by the psychiatric profession and are labeled as instead mass hysteria. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Or that makes me think of groupthink. Groupthink, right. Mass hysteria. Okay. So anyway, they basically say this is a rare clinical syndrome. Its characteristic feature is transmission of delusions from inducer who is originally ill patient and suffers from a psychotic disorder to another person who may share the inducer's delusions in entirety or in part. Depending on whether the delusions are shared among two, three, four, five, or even 12 people, it is called a folia, du, folia, toi, and so on. So generally, so here's why I think you could have this be considered by Jack at The Shining, or you know, in The Shining. It's mostly observed among people who live in close proximity and in close relationships. It's found often in parent, offspring, sibling, sibling, or husband-wife constellations. <sighs> Furthermore, now this is an interesting statistic, mother, daughter, or sister, sister pairs represents 50% of the psychotic dyads. Wow. Rarely all the family members share the same delusions, and this is called a, fam- a folia family. Yeah. Um, f- additionally, there are case reports of physician-patient folia do, or even a, c- a case involving a dog. So here's a few more things. Risk factors include female gender, mental retardation, suggestibility, passivity, histrionic personality traits, and suspiciousness in the secondary patient. Now, I would say Wendy definitely is passive, has histrionic tendencies, and is suspicious and hence is a female. So moreover, dependency, ambivalent relationships, and repetitive crises have been seen in the family. So is there dependency? Yes. He's, yes. he's the only one working. She does seem dependent in the way she's portrayed until the very end. She's very weak. She she doesn't, she looks scared all the time. She's very fearful. Yeah. And he's um, horrible to her. And, horrible to her. and, says, and there's, okay. procli- and so yeah. there's that proclivity to violence. Yeah. He tells her to shut the F up and tells her she's stupid. And she mm-hmm. sort of just accepts that blindly and like mm-hmm. smiles and walks away. Um, so, so there, and then also I'd read somewhere, um, which is very official when I've read something somewhere, um, <laughs> that alcoholism can also be a, a trigger for that. And I think okay. that goes back to the beginning where you talked a lot about the brain and how is that frontal lobe functioning? Yes. And, you know, and, and if it's not, if alcohol is 
numbed that up a little bit or changed changed the brain chemistry there's more susceptibility in addition to jack so what i'd say sometimes we talk about some people with bipolar disorder who are very creative mm-hmm. kind of flow in that what's real what's not real and jack being creative and being a writer is there more susceptibility to that um the one interesting story i found which i feel is worth mentioning is um uh, a 52-year-old woman was admitted to the ER suffering weakness, dizziness, and nausea. So she complained of difficulty in swallowing solid foods and liquids for nine days, which made her avoid eating or drinking. Um, she had a history of weight loss and had lost some weight in the past nine months. Upon clinical examination, she was ill, agitated, dehydrated. During the interview, it was identified she had a persecutory delusion about food poisoning by her husband's relatives for about one year. Although her next door neighbors were her husband's relatives, she did not have any relationship with them, and she thought they wanted to poison her and her children, and they might do this in several ways, such as injecting the poison to foodstuff or in even the water main. First, she only ate fresh food, but at last, she even avoided drinking water, and after a while, she became ill, and her somatic symptoms, such as nausea, weakness, agitation, and dizziness, were appeared. She said her 22-year-old high school graduated daughter had agreed with her suspicions. She had an eight-year-old son whom she kept home at all the time and did not feed sufficiently. It gets better, Madeline. Wow. Her family was invited to gather for more information. Her daughter was interviewed, presenting histrionic traits and some delusion, same d- delusional beliefs. Huh. Her husband was a 55-year-old carpenter. He did not have good relationships with his family and didn't care about them. He ate his food at work, and in spite of the fact that he thought his wife's beliefs were ridiculous, when his family was starving, he did not do anything. Wow. Unfortunately, he did not give permission for visiting his eight-year-old son, but according to the interview, the patient did not feed him sufficiently due to her delusion, and despite of her mother's warnings, he had eaten something in the school, and then the patient did not let him go to school anymore. Interesting. Okay. It was supposed that he was a case of delusional disorder by proxy. So he, because he was eight, didn't maybe didn't believe it, but... Couldn't step, you know, couldn't fight his mom and maybe eventually came to believe it. His condition was followed by a social worker. I don't think we know if there was a happy ending, unfortunately. Um, Regarding the delusional disorder diagnosis, uh, the patient was described olanzapine starting five milligrams a day and increased to 50 milligrams a day. The severity of delusions lessened after three weeks, despite our plans for more sessions with the family. They refused to come to the hospital after the first session and we could not follow her daughter's delusions. Wow. So that's an actual documented case of a fully ado where... Huh. Where they're sharing, you know, so then that idea of like she was put on medication and then the delusion got better. My fear is, is that if this family stopped treatment and she went home and stopped taking her medication, the delusion would come back. And then certainly the the child's safety if she's now homeschooling him and he's being starved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when when families sort of reject treatment. Um, you have to light a candle as a therapist for the family. Yes. But um, it's, 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 you always wonder, I think, yeah. like, was sort of the homeostatic undercurrent of their uh, more comfortable behaviors and patterns better than being healthy? Right. Like, or, you know, just more, it's more comfortable sometimes to not change. Yeah. So then you do sort of have to. I don't know. I sort of, you're kind of lighting a candle and putting it into the river, know. Um, you know, on a little paper boat right. and hoping that they can, you know, they come right. back, but they don't yeah. a lot of the time. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that your treatment wasn't effective or that your relationship wasn't strong enough. Right. Um, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah. yeah. So the last thing I would say about the overlook a little bit just to, so is it that it's haunted mm-hmm. or is there this delusion that's going on? And so I'm going to argue kind of both. Okay. So obviously um, I'm going to go with the, like, let's be logical and scientific. So yes. Have people died in the overlook? Yes. Guess what? People die in hotels all the time. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And so here you have a man who is barely sober, barely holding it together, has sort of this belief that he's this great writer, but he's really not. He's kind of an ass. And now he's going to go live up in the mountains in this giant hotel all by himself with his wife and kid. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, yeah, don't go in room 237. Something bad happened in there. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, one would maybe start wondering if they're starting to see things. So then he is writing his book and he can't come to any he's right. he's becoming very frustrated with himself because he can't produce any work, mm-hmm. therefore becoming more isolated. So he's isolating more because now he's not really communicating with Wendy and Danny. Mm-hmm. He's basically barred her from the hotel lobby where he's working. He says, if I am working, you are not allowed in here. Do not interrupt me. Right. Stay away. So then it's also keeping Danny and Wendy together. So meanwhile, you've got this kid with a highly suggestive imagination, right? He's got his imaginary friend who's telling him red rum and, you know, they're talking and now you're suddenly a five-year-old imaginative. You're all alone. Your mom and dad aren't really speaking now and you're left to your devices in this giant hotel We've been told to not go into this room. So you go into this room and your imagination gets the better of you and someone has choked you. Right. Now did and it was suggested in the film and the book that he did it to himself. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So So that's our scientific That's kind of like, that- is it possible? And then you're like, Well, Julia, what about the chef? Well, let's let's go a time out for a second. Let's okay. just say he's telepathic. So let's say Danny is telepathic, okay. much like Norman was antisocial. Okay. So Danny's telepathic and now he's starting to worry that daddy's going crazy and he wants help. And so he telepathically sends that out to Halloran to come and save him mm-hmm. because he sees his dad is starting to talk to the walls right. and talk to people who aren't there okay. and is acting like he's drunk, even though there's no alcohol in the building. And yeah. so he calls Halloran to come save and him. Comes and, and, it, right. and it works. Right? And it works. So. And then Wendy at the very end also sees the dead person because suddenly why is my husband trying to kill me right but then so this is interesting Mm -hmm. so if you if in this story wendy's situation is so dangerous does it become sort of evolutionarily necessary in her brain that she joins the psychotic episode from a scientific perspective to protect herself fight or flight but yeah, yeah. But if she sees the dead people yes. with her husband yes. <gasps> in this psychotic, then she's more likely to live because yes. she's going to see like the yeah. things he's seen that are making him dangerous exactly. and threatening and the plan that those things have. Could, for. Yes. So, yeah. So there is a, there's some primal thing that maybe supports this notion that we can share a psychotic this, episode. Yes. If, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if people share them when we're not, when they're not near death. I don't know. Because that's it. Does folia do happen when it's, you know, when I or you're die more if I don't pre, share Right. Your... You're more predisposed to it. Yeah. Like in the like in the movie Bug, you have two people who are very isolated 
Um, and she, um, Ashley Judd's character, has lost a child in the past. So kind of down on their luck and they meet and they start a relationship and now she's there all the time and they don't have a lot of contact with the outside world and he's talking about how this horrible the sad story of him being in the military and how he's being infected and then pretty soon like there's tinfoil on the ceilings and like they're cutting yeah. themselves to get the bugs out. Ugh. Imagine you have your lover is in front of you cutting himself open to get the bugs and you have to think there must be bugs because why else would he be cutting right. himself? Right. And if you have, if you're down like that character and you're survival, you need someone to take care of or yeah. Or like you, like your perceived survival is dependent on this relationship. Yeah. Maybe it makes more sense to join them. Right. We'll believe it together. Yeah. So, and I'm not talking about a conscious decision. No. Saying, is this like sort of right. a brain's unconscious primal exactly. way to keep you alive when you're caring for you're right. For Jack so, in the hotel. In the hotel. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I think. So this okay. is how I explained, you know. Yeah. And and there's other, like, and the other argument is that everything's haunted. It is. The other right. argument is everything's haunted. And in the book, clearly so. And to a less, and in the movie, frankly, it's yeah. just the book portrays it in much more in depth than, than the movie could. But, yeah, that the Overlook is um, haunted and is trying to keep people there basically so imagine it as almost like the devil or its own living breathing entity yeah and so every time everyone leaves a few end up staying and if you i highly the book is goes into much more detail about that right. but but imagine in the book in the book it's a li- living breathing evil entity which makes it even more terrifying it's terrifying yeah it makes it harder to actually explain a folly I do. Like right. if, if you said, Julia, in the book, is it a folly I'll do? I'd say absolutely not. It's one of the most terrifying things you'd ever read. But the movie is a little more ambiguous, which maybe was Kubrick's decision, much yeah. like Alfred Hitchcock's. To, to make you do the work. To make you do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So and what's funny is I I don't know. Um, I, I like both your arguments. Mm-hmm. I... I um, I have listened to so many ghost stories being yeah. interested in this like genre mm-hmm. and so many stories of people who've told me that their houses are haunted. Um, I never feel good saying that, that they're wrong. Yes. So I just cross well, my fingers and I listen to the stories. It, but It goes back to your point at the beginning, Madeline, of what is reality? Yeah. I mean, so if every person has said something is haunted, you're like, oh, you're having a hallucination right. or a delusion. You just need meds is a really scary place to be. Right. Yeah. You, you know, do, I think you want to be in the middle somewhere. You do. You want, you want to be prepared for the case that there's right. ghosts. Absolutely. Um, and prepared for the case where you, where you have to do a referral. Yes. For Either way. <laughs> but that, so that's just, yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because you go to different, sh- like a shared delusion or psychotic break isn't always about a haunting, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. But there's this whole, be- like, when we hear something is haunted and you believe in ghosts, you're like, oh, that's true. Right. Which goes to these realities and what society says versus saying, can you imagine if every person who said that was haunted was actually like, well, time to take you to the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's anything we don't see. And these beliefs are often grounded, again, in a primal place. Yes. Like, it might serve you to think that the creepy falling apart house with strange people living in mm-hmm. it is haunted. Yes. So that you don't get kidnapped. Like, it, you know, yeah. it might not prevent you no. from getting kidnapped, but it might serve you to have it these might. sort of these fear, fear of the dark, fear of the unknown, fear of um, something that's maybe not human. It sort of is a primal fear that 
that has served cave people. It has. And us alike. That, yes, yeah. there's that. And then there's, you know, if we, if there's people who believe in, you know, they've seen their dead relatives and that connection of somebody you've lost. And I don't think it, that too is okay to be like, well, that's just a delusion. Nope. No. It's I not healthy. I don't think you get to, yeah. you don't get to say that. No. So, so I think if, if your fears and delusions are not negatively impacting yours or someone else's life. Yes. We have to be careful about sort of ripping those apart yeah. and sort of taking them from people. Right. Um, because there are certainly those, those realities that we don't share that are functional for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about disorders or mental no. health. I'm just saying in, in, as a general rule. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, this was really oh, very fun. <laughs> Once again, another very interesting episode of Coach of Characters. Yes. Yes. Thank um, you for joining us. Thanks. We'll love to do Fight Club. We will love yeah. to do Fight Club. Yeah. yeah, that popped into my head. Fight Club would be really yeah. good. There's a few other ones we could do. Fight Club was one of them. There was another character I was thinking of. Oh, okay. So Hannibal. So we remember we talked about Hannibal yes. in the first podcast, but Will Graham has Big time hallucinations. Oh, okay. Yes. And Hannibal. Yeah. Okay. So we could do Will, and then there was somebody else. I thought you mentioned. Yeah. There's, um, there's so many. I thought there's some. Um, so you could do that, but we could do Fight Club and Will. Yeah. I, my my fun one mm-hmm. that I had thought about doing was Portlandia. <gasps> yes, we're gonna do Portlandia too. I want to do couples therapy for all of the couples on Portlandia. Let's do that. So there's many <laughs> things many to ideas. come, many <laughs> ideas to come. But uh, if you have any comments or questions for us, you can tweet us at at Couch of Couch, Characters. Couch of Characters, right? Yeah. Yep. I always get that wrong. Yep. I think that. Yeah. I think it's at Couch of Characters. You can also email us at couchofcharacters at gmail.com. Yeah. That is correct. And uh, thanks and for listening, everybody. Thank you. And wait for episode four. It's going to yeah. be amazing. Have a wonderful night. <laughs> Bye. Everyone. Bye.